0: On this episode of AvTalk, we try to unpack what happened this week as C-band 5G wireless went live in the United States. And we talk with Matthew Wheatstock from Western Michigan University about one of the paths young people can use to enter the aviation industry. Hello, and welcome to episode
1: 147 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. And it's great to be recording the, the last podcast of 2022. Oh, wait, it's it's only been a day today. It feels like a year. <laughs> oh, it's been a week. The, yeah. This this week
0: has been a long year.
1: Yeah. You know that meme from uh, 30 Rock where, where Lemon says, wow, what a week, right? And then uh, the response is, Lemon, it's only Wednesday. That's today. Yep. That's today. That's today. It is only Wednesday. It's Wednesday,
0: January 19th, and it is the first day of 5G C band deployment in the United States. And
1: boy, what a day it has been. Wow. What fun, Jason. What fun. It has been so much fun. As someone who has levels of interest in both, Mobile phone technology and aviation—it and has been the perfect blending of uh, nonsense on either side of the spectrum. Perfect
0: blending of nonsense.
1: I, I've been thinking about you know we always talk about uh, our friend John
0: Ostrower's uh, saying there's always an aviation angle. This week, I have been hoping that there is no aviation angle. You are going to be disappointed. I would I would just like something I would I would just like for once there for there to not be an aviation angle. Let's get into where do we even start? <laughs> Let's start with. So I've been wrestling with this uh for, for the past couple of days trying to figure out how to structure the show. And I, I think that the best thing to do, uh given that we don't have charts and graphs and eight by ten color glossy photos with words and pictures on the back, is to do a very brief rundown of of what we mean by a few key terms, and then kind of quickly move us from a few years ago to a few months ago, and then move from from a few months ago to to this week, um, and, and let's see if we can do that without losing anyone or, or confusing anyone. Because I, I would very much like to do the exact. Opposite and, and provide a little bit of clarity um, in in a uh, muddled up, mixed up world. So, when we talk about five G, we're talking in in this particular context. We're talking about the the C band, which in the U S. is different than. Everywhere else, you'd think all of these very, very technical standards—they would at least come up with something that's consistent.
1: But well, no. it's it's close, but every, every close, country but has its own spectrum rights, and they're usually pretty close. And in this case, it is pretty close. But the, the pretty close is what separates uh, right. normal airline operations from apparent chaos.
0: So, in the U.S., we have two spectrum bands that are. Uh, very close to each other. And that is where all the problems come in. So the the C-band that is being used by the wireless companies to make your your wireless service faster is 3.7 to 3.98 gigahertz. Then there is a band above that that is reserved for usage by radio altimeters on aircraft from 4.2 to 4.4 gigahertz. It all comes down to making sure that those bands stay separate and that there is no interference there. Because the, the overriding concern, and we talked about this a little bit before when, when we thought this was all going to be resolved before the
1: day that it came to turn it on. Which was last uh, March, by the which way. Which was – yeah. Or I'm sorry, last December, not March. Yeah. Uh,
0: so so the the issue is there is concern that the the towers with the the C band um, equipment on them, broadcasting in that range, could interfere with the radio altimeters that aircraft are equipped with. Those radio altimeters are extremely, extremely, extremely important for for landing in uh in poor weather um or or challenging situations and they're they're very low power um, and very what's the word I'm looking for here interference and any erroneous readings would be very bad they're they're critical for safe operation so the f a a has taken an extremely hard line um and the uh the aviation in- industry has taken an extremely hard line in in saying oh this is this is bad this is terrible um we have grave concerns it could impact everything from from you know fixed wing commercial transports all the way to um you know helicopters and and, and light aircraft as well and these are not new concerns um, these are concerns that were raised in 2018, when the initial plan to to section off the the C band from satellite operators and provide them to wireless carriers first came about. It was addressed in 2020 from a report by a a working group that's uh, set up on the aviation side. Called the Radio Technical Commission for Aeronautics. They issued a report in October 2020 after some 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 research and some modeling, and and so all of these concerns should have come together, at least in, in my mind, and I think Jason, you're in agreement here. Should have come together because the FCC and the wireless companies have said there's no problem. It's been deployed elsewhere. Um, in in other countries 40 other countries around the world it's not a problem there uh we can make this work so so if there were concerns they they should have you know been addressed so that didn't happen the auction went ahead in december of 2020 for the spectrum space uh the wireless companies spent 81 billion dollars a record on this spectrum and then we get to a year later when things are supposed to be deployed on the 5th of December 2021. Leading up to that, the FAA, airlines, uh, the Department of Transportation, uh, various congressional
1: committee heads all say, wait, 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 we're not ready, we're not ready, we're not ready. It was a little more different than wait, 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 we're not ready. It was pretty much, we're all going to die and the economy will implode if we go forward with this current plan. Yeah. Uh, that too. <laughs> there is that. Yeah, there there is. At that. least publicly that was the message. If you flip the switch, we all die. More, yeah. more or less. More or less.
0: Um and and we're exaggerating some some statements here for effect, but basically that that was the gist of the argument. So then on Thursday, December 9th the Federal Aviation Administration adopted a new airworthiness directive for all transport and commuter category airplanes equipped with a radio altimeter. Um, and so the FAA goes on to say that this directive was prompted by a determination that radio altimeters cannot be relied upon to perform their intended function if they experience interference from wireless broadband operations in the 3.7 to 3.9 gigahertz frequency band, the 5GC band. Uh, and basically you can't Use your aircraft where we say there could be interference. And as it turns out, the most likely place for interference would be all of the large airports. Where aircraft operate?
1: Yeah, fifty major metropolitan areas throughout uh, the U.S., not including, I believe, Alaska and Hawaii at all. But fifty major metropolitan cities, of course, comprising of many airports within that. So the New York metropolitan area includes uh, JFK, Newark, LaGuardia, Stewart, all the way into Connecticut, Hartford, Bradley. I think.
0: Yeah, and and I, I guess in fairness to uh, Denver, Atlanta, they were not included.
1: Yeah, some of uh, a bunch of metropolitan areas are also not included because this spectrum was previously used by satellite operators, and the mobile telecom companies have basically paid the satellite companies to vacate the spectrum early so they could get their hands on the spectrum uh right now in, in 50 major areas while the other cities um including Denver and Atlanta like you mentioned won't be clear until later in 2023 so so those those airports were not
0: uh affected at at this point and and so then we get to we get to more back and forth between uh, basically the FAA and the FCC, um, the airline industry, the wireless industry. They're all searching for agreements and there's a lot of back and forth. And they say, okay, fine, we'll move it to the 5th of January. Then that comes up and and a few weeks ago, then they say, okay, well, we're going to postpone it one last time to the 19th.
1: Yeah, and this this was voluntary by uh, let's be real. It's Verizon and to a lesser extent AT and T who paid, like we mentioned, billions and billions of billions of dollars to not only acquire the spectrum but also clear it early to get a hold of it in, in fifty major metro areas. Um, so at that point, it, they voluntarily uh, opted for another two week delay and. January 4th Verizon basically put an ultimatum out and said if you're not ready when we are by January 19th uh, deal with it. And so
0: what we assumed uh over those weeks months uh is that the the airline industry that the FAA would be determining ways to mitigate these risks and if the risks are are not able to be mitigated, they would figure something out the f a a to to its credit has has put together a handy dandy uh five g page on their website and and one of the things says is that um because of the um the delay the two week delay, they allowed the aviation and wireless community to reduce the risk. During that time, the FAA has received vital 5G transmitter location, power level information from the wireless companies. You think that this information would have been conveyed earlier. Uh, facilitated data sharings between avionics manufacturers and wireless company, you think that would have been done earlier uh determined that some gps guided approaches may be used at certain airports why wasn't that determined earlier i mean n- none of this is surprise there's no surprise here this has been worked on for years no
1: it, it, it's very clear that an utter complete lack of government oversight was to blame here between whether you want to divvy it up between the FAA and the FCC or apportion different calculations of blame here, the FAA and the FCC seem to have completely shirked their responsibilities and really didn't start their work in earnest until the last week or two. It feels like. I, and and to be fair, there has been a lot
0: of. Back and forth between the FAA and the FCC and, and industry stakeholders over the past couple of years, but it doesn't seem to have gone anywhere in order to say, okay, we understand the risks for these particular radio altimeters uh, if you've got one you've got we could we could have said this a year ago um, you've got a year to 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 replace it to to fix it.
1: Yeah. yeah. I I especially don't understand the part about they they were waiting or they couldn't get their hands on information from the carriers about, I guess, uh, C-band site locations and stuff like that. It it doesn't matter. In, In places like New York City, just imagine that they're located every block. And then the power limits, aren't those set by the FCC, like the maximum transmitting power, the wattage? That should all be defined by the FCC. I I don't see why the locations of the sites matter, but then again, we are – uh, not experts in this field. No, no.
0: It, the, the, this discussion is not, certainly not a technical discussion of, of any kind. Um, we, we briefly talked, Jason and I briefly talked about getting technical experts on here. But the, the problem is is that any tex- technical expert that, that we talk to um, is very steadfast in their regard that the other side is incorrect.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we
0: we found it very difficult to find someone who 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 would kind of give a not it's just the other guy's fault um, stance on things. So so what ended up happening is that
1: yesterday airlines started canceling flights. Well, before that, uh, the there was an agreement made that the wireless carriers would uh, implement like a two mile buffer zone around airports within these. Areas basically, so that they wouldn't turn on C band cell sites within an undefined two mile radius rectangle, square, or something around airports. We're, we're still pretty unclear on Cold. that. They, they've said some radius, buddies. but then I've heard people have seen maps where it's a rectangle, and rectangles aren't radius, but whatever. Um, so there was an agreement made, I think, a couple of weeks ago, saying that they won't, or maybe maybe last week actually, that they will simply not turn on C band sites. Within some critical distance, within range of an airport,
0: and so the the notams that were were issued by the FAA per airport listed what procedures were unavailable given the the restrictions, and those were um, not aircraft specific. Then there were some aircraft specific. Uh, Bulletins issued by by Boeing that specifically address the the triple seven, and so that led to yesterday uh, because um, the FAA hadn't approved an alternative method of compliance to to keep those aircraft being able to operate um, low visibility approaches where five G is present. They certain airlines decided that they needed to cancel flights because they didn't want to risk whatever they wanted. They didn't want to risk whatever it was, uh, whether getting stuck there or not being able to land at a particular airport, being turned away from a particular airport, having to divert if the weather had gone uh, not the way they wanted it to.
1: I had heard that Boeing went as far as contacting these airlines and saying, don't even attempt it. Just don't fly the 777 to airports with Potential C band interference, and it yeah, so like a so that was, took that warning very quickly. That was one of the
0: things that that was one of the things that, that John Ostar was reporting on. Um, Boeing issued a, a multi operator memo uh, to to triple seven operators saying, until there is a alternative method of compliance, don't operate a triple seven to an airport with five G C band active.
1: That led to some rather wild moments, hours, a couple of hours where uh, some major international airlines flying to the U.S. very suddenly said, uh, you know what, we don't even need to fly to the U.S. We're just going to cancel flights. So Very quickly, uh, ANA and JAL in Japan very quickly said, uh, we're canceling our, our all of our flights to the U.S. for some period of time. Emirates uh, canceled almost all of its flights that were operated by the 777. I think they only had left in their schedule, Dulles, JFK, and LA.
0: Washington was the third major uh, – Atlanta, Denver, and Washington. Those were the three major uh, population centers
1: that did not have activation. Right. and, and BA, British Airways, actually substituted out a few of their flights from the 777 since where uh, JFK is an all-777 destination for, for BA. Uh, we actually got a seven eight seven for the first time, I think, a, a dash nine, and also an A 1000 So that's that's interesting, but it seems like in a matter of hours, it went from we are canceling our flights to the U.S. indefinitely because of C band interference to you know what? Don't even worry about it. Boeing says it's totally cool now. And well, <laughs> because, within the same day, the FAA, right? Because the FAA came out with this is the alternative
0: method of compliance, and and so. Um, they've cleared five altimeters
1: at first it uh, was boeing. two
0: right at first, first it was two, two now it's five primarily the
1: 737 ng family and the a320 family of aircraft and the md11 so so now it's yeah
0: now it's five altimeters and that includes the families of the boeing 717 737 747 67, 77 still no 87 yet and uh, md10 and md11 Uh, So basically, the FedEx fleet and and UPS fleet there Airbus A300, 310, 319, 320, 21,
1: 30, 40, 50, and 80. Yeah, a couple notable exceptions there, like you mentioned, the 787, which is interesting because a lot of airlines subbed out their 777s for 787s. uh, Odd there, but notably, uh, the A220 is missing Mm -hmm. because it's, I guess, Technically, not in it, it wasn't an Airbus developed aircraft. So maybe there's extra paperwork there. I don't know. Different, yeah, different altimeter. I I don't know. Different something. But uh, what we're looking at now is most most major aircraft. The FAA says 62% of the US commercial fleet, but this is really only mainline aircraft. Uh, There is not a single regional jet on this list. So Um, If you're flying on a a CRJ, an ERJ, or an A220, or an an E jet, those are not on this list at this point. We have no idea when, if that'll happen. I I assume it will at some point when the FAA continues doing the homework it should have done six months ago. But uh, if you are not confident that your your flight will go as planned, maybe rebook to a mainline flight.
0: Yeah, it's – the the FAA says we are reviewing testing data for altimeters used in regional jets.
1: Doesn't say anything more than that. Great. Where were you uh, six months ago?
0: That's what they're working on. Um, so so right now we're back to there are a few altimeters that still need to be cleared in order to get us over that that fairly large hump of you know 30 some odd percent of, of US aviation. Um eh, and and who knows how long that's going to take. Although, given the fact that they were, I don't want to say magically, but um, very efficiently able to add the 777's alternative method of compliance uh, and, and check that out, um, basically overnight, then I, I hope it does not take long. Again, this whole conversation is just so, it should have been, hey, they they turned on the things your phones faster now
1: yeah and um interestingly a wrinkle on top of this is just not the Radio altimeters themselves that need to be issued an alternative method of compliance. Uh, the airports also need to receive these AMOCs. And there's something published by American Airlines just a few minutes ago, actually, that says they've received their AMOC for the 737, 777, and 787, which is interesting. Uh, so that might be a, a hot new development right now, but they have not yet received anything for their Airbus and regional fleets, but expect to very soon. So it seems to be trickling in, not just by, you know, blanket aircraft type, but aircraft type airport and airline, which is interesting. And it says on the mainline side, they saw some delays and four whole cancellations and to expect some minor localized impacts until the Airbus uh, plans are finalized. And uh, for their Bombardier CRJ and Embraer fleets, they've seen a few more cancellations and delays than mainline. Uh, but the FAA and manufacturers have shared that they are working diligently to finalize uh, plans. Oh, now they're working diligently. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. good. They took a very long vacation, uh, focused on other things apparently, and now they are working very diligently on this. So,
0: After all the doom and gloom, the sky is falling, literally, the sky is falling.
1: Things are falling out of the sky. Things are falling out of the sky. There were a few cancellations a few and the, i'm sure the airline industry will will parrot back while well, the weather was nice today so there wasn't really a problem and i guess in, in that case they're they're not wrong but remember most of this situation only prevents category 2 and 3 ils and autoland approaches which is not all that common i guess i'm probably going to take some flack for that podcast at fr24.com. Mm-hmm. If you
0: have- There, there were definitely
1: RNAV, RNP approaches that were straight out prohibited, like uh, JFK 13 left, which is you know a big deal. Um, but there were alternate methods that didn't, re- uh, didn't require that. But um, I think most pilots would say they, they can count the number of times they've done an Autoland approach on one hand, probably. That, I, I can't tell you. Nope. But nope. hopefully somebody else can. Hopefully someone can. Let's leave this discussion here
0: and hopefully come back next week and say, hey, everything's fine.
1: Is my phone any faster? No.
0: I certainly hope so. You you'll have to let me know. It's not. All this okay. for nothing. <laughs> All this for nothing. There you go. That's no surprise. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to talk with Matthew Weestock, who is uh has a very cool job title. And he's gonna tell us how you can begin a career in aviation. So stay with us we will be right back. Welcome back and we are now joined by Matthew Wheatstock who is an aviation ambassador from Western Michigan University which is We've had some pretty cool job titles. It's the best title we've ever introduced on this show. It's the best title we've ever had. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us to talk about uh, uh, getting started in the aviation industry.
2: Yeah, definitely. I'm glad to be here.
0: So, a- As an aviation ambassador at, at Western Michigan, what, what exactly do you do?
2: Really what I do is I coordinate the recruitment and outreach with the College of Aviation, going out and trying to get people who are interested in the field of aviation and just seeing like, hey, do you want to go and study this? You want to make this your full-time career? We can help you get there and all the next steps involved with that.
0: And so we're not just talking about becoming a pilot here, right?
2: Right. Um, so we really kind of focus on three different aspects. We do have the pilot side of things. That's our flight science degree. Then we've also got more of the manage and operations. Um, and then we've also got our technical operations. So that's more of the manufacturing and maintenance process.
0: So what track are
2: you on? So I'm a dual major in the management operations program and the flight science program. So we do have people who double major actually between all three of the programs. Um so it's not uncommon to see someone like me who is a flight science and management major or a technical operations and flight science major.
1: That is so much cooler than whatever it is I was doing in college. <laughs> so so what is the idea about
0: um, because we've heard we've heard about you know the the pilot shortage um, most recently and and most acutely the regional pilot shortage um, and we've heard about a lot of airlines trying to ramp up not just their 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 pilot core but also uh, you know staff up and down the line including people like dispatchers and um, you know maintenance personnel and, and things like that so so what what's kind of the the benefit uh, to, to going the route that, that you're in as far as starting at a university and going from there?
2: Well, first and foremost, the thing that you want to get at the end of a college education is of course the degree. And while, especially in aviation, that's not always required. I think Delta recently announced that they're no longer requiring a degree for their pilots. It is definitely still highly preferred, um, It's a great step in the door as well. We do a lot of different networking opportunities as students with airlines and corporate aviation outfits that come in. They talk to our students and just try to actually get us to sign up for something while we're still here. Um, plus, if you come here for the flight science program, there is the added benefit of being a Part 141 school, which means that if we go through and do all of our training here, we complete our degree, we actually get a full 500-hour reduction in what we need to get our airline transport pilot's license to go fly for one of those airlines. Um, we have all of that just kind of taken care of, and for our maintenance aspect of it, um, we take care of all of the 1,900 hours needed for the Part 147 certification to get an A and P license.
0: So you're you're not only getting a, a, a bachelor's degree, an undergraduate degree. You're, I mean, in in some cases, if you're becoming a pilot, you're reducing your 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 hourly uh, workload, and then if you're going on the mechanical side, you're you're looking at being basically being ready to be hired in into somebody's shop right away.
2: Yeah, definitely. That's exactly what we're looking at. Is getting people from point A to point B as easily as possible.
1: Do you feel like most people who enter this program, do they know coming into it what they want to do in the aviation industry when they graduate from this program or is it more the case that people know they want to do something in aviation but they don't really know what and does the program kind of guide them towards an end goal?
2: We definitely have a good mix of both. Uh, we have people who are coming in the legacy pilots who their parents are both pilots or flight attendants or something in aviation. And they know I want to go work exactly for this airline because that's what my parents did. Um, and then you've got people like me who are first generation in this. And we have no clue what's going on. We kind of have an idea of where we'd like to go. But along the way, I've had so many different shifts in even just what I want to do. Um, it's been incredible with the university being there to support me and say, there are all these different options. I think one of the things many people don't understand fully is just how ingrained aviation is into everyday life. Um, And one of the best examples of this, I had a friend who came in, he wanted to go directly to a mainline airline. And now he doesn't want to go to an airline at all. He just wants to go fly for a corporate outfit, go and fly around some charter aircraft.
0: Yeah, it's it's good to find out what you like and what you don't like. I, I mean, what what are some of the things that you're working on while you're a student? That that is, what are those things that aren't, you know, flying hours or or physically working on an uh, an engine if you're going the 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 technical route or or things like that? Is it is it more um, math focused, math and science focused, or or is this degree part of a Maybe a more holistic degree that that you would think of as a at any other university.
2: So this is, we do have a little bit of both here. We have the aspect of it, of going and completing our general education requirements. Um, so again, but being what more uh, liberal arts degree, I, if you want to call it that, of you will understand English and history, maybe take a language if you want to, those kinds of classes. But then for the aviation aspect of it, we are an actual full college of aviation. We have an entire education center just for aviation specific courses. Um, so I think an example is, Classes I'm in right now are flight physiology, learning how the body reacts to flying, or I'm also in flight operations, learning about dispatching proceedings or what pilots do on a day-to-day basis and how we can safely operate.
0: So it, it kind of starts more generally and then, and then works its way into as you get deeper into your chosen specialization. Yeah. You, you kind of end up with a, a, a track.
2: Yeah, and you are, you do have aviation classes from the first year, but the first class is literally just called Introduction to Aviation. It's about as broad of a topic as you could possibly ever get in a uh, review course. So it really cleans does
0: up work. grounds down exactly. that kind of thing. Or okay, exactly. I think that's the, a, I suppose it's a good place to start.
2: I think the second lesson we did in that class was learning how to speak the phonetic alphabet.
1: I mean that that's important. Unfortunately, for, we've for all learned that in different ways this year too.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definitely.
0: When you're working on your degree and and you mentioned that you have a lot of networking opportunities and things like that, do, do you also have a lot of internship opportunities to, to work with various... I mean, either local or, or maybe you take a semester off and go somewhere?
2: Yep. We have people who have gone all across the US to do internships. Um, one of my good friends actually just completed an internship recently with Alaska Airlines. Um, my flight instructor, when I was still doing flight training, he did a semester off and went over and worked with United Airlines. Um, personally, I did an internship as well. I went to a corporate outfit uh, about an hour north of here in Grand Rapids. So there are, Again, a lot of different opportunities to get networked and involved around here.
0: So, someone's interested. Um, they're either in high school or, or they haven't yet applied to to colleges yet, and they're thinking, you know, this is a, a route I might want to take. What are some of the things that? that are good to to be prepared for before you get into the program and then maybe what are some of the things while you're in it that you you look back and go oh i i wish i had you know learned a little bit more about that or or done something like this um uh, you know just to to be more prepared
2: it's definitely the math science classes that i wish i would have prepared more on and that's something we actually tell all of our incoming students you're going to need a very good understanding of math and science um and It doesn't have to get super specific with science because aviation is all around us. We've got the environmental science of weather. We've got the technical science of the physical aircraft. Um, We still need to know about human anatomy with our flight physiology. Uh, Math is a lot of calculus and algebra. So just getting those two subjects down. Um, But it is also we look for well-rounded individuals um, when even applying for the program. So it's not just those two areas. It's having a good understanding of a little bit of everything. It just happens those two areas are kind of the ones we focus on the most.
0: And then how similar would you say that the Western Michigan's program is to other um, full university programs? I mean, maybe some of the, I guess, for people listening to this podcast, most people have heard of Embry-Riddle um, or, or something like that.
2: There are definitely aspects of it that are very similar. Our flight training programs are pretty similar. Um, I mean, we are both 141 regulated by the FAA for flight training. Um, but then we have other aspects of it that make us a very, very different. Um, I mean, we are an NCAA Division I university. We have a football team and a hockey team. Actually, our hockey team right now, which does have some aviation students on it, is number four in the country. We have research grants. We have uh, the Honors College. We have all these different things that you'd expect if you went to a major university. And we also get to go and fly airplanes while we're studying. So it's really kind of a unique perspective to be in. Um, We're not fully ever in one door. We're kind of in a mix of two.
0: I'm sitting here, you know. Uh, I don't want to say how many years out of college, uh, wishing I, I may have gone gone a different <laughs> route and gone back and, and and done this. I mean, one of the things, and, and you mentioned earlier in the conversation where Delta is not requiring uh, a degree for um, a, a pilot's license, but but since we've got you, I I would love for you to make the case for having the degree, not necessarily for a pilot's license, but just for having the degree in general. If that's how you feel
2: the degree definitely helps you in terms of, well, it's just one of those things on a resume that first off looks nice. Um, but even beyond the resume, I'm learning very helpful, valuable skills here that I wouldn't have learned if I was just off getting my license at a standard part 61 school, or if I was somewhere else, I'm getting actual knowledge that I'm applying direct to everyday use, um, my internship over the summer, I looked back on so many of the courses that I had taken here, and it's like, this is exactly what my professors were preparing me for. And the professors here, they come from the industry. They come back here. Um, one of my operations professors actually was one of the director of operations at Denver Airport. And now she's teaching us how we can go in and prepare ourselves for the careers that we want to do. It's not so much of a just you're thrown into the cold. Um, they kind of guide you and help prepare you for what you think you're going to be doing. And then sometimes, yeah, it's a little different, but that's why we kind of do with that holistic approach. We're teaching you a little bit of everything from the aviation industry. Um, so that's really where I see the benefit to it. Um, and again, it's not the only path in aviation, but it is definitely a good path. And especially if you're getting into this relatively new and you know nothing about aviation, it's kind of a handhold along the way.
1: So I have... Two questions, or really one and a follow up for you. Um, So, we we discussed before what the split is between students that come in knowing what they want to do and figuring out what they want to do. Which were you? And since you're closer to graduation than not, where did you land at this point? What do you think you want to do in the industry once you do graduate pretty soon?
2: I came in thinking I know exactly where I want to go, and I made a Full 180 on that I just went through and it's like, I have absolutely no clue what I wanted to do. I started out only in the flight program Um and I was just like, yep, I want to go be a pilot. That's all I want to do. And I got here and I started doing the training and it was good training and I actually did end up finishing it all. But I got through it and I realized, you know, the pilot stuff is fun but there's a lot more going on than I realize here. And the operations aspect of it really appealed to me. So now I think I want to go more into uh, the dispatching or the flight planning and flight operations side of things. Um, so exactly where in there, I'm not sure, but I actually am planning on going through and completing my dispatcher certification. So I've got that always at it.
1: So that really actually speaks very well to what you had just mentioned that uh, in, in the debate, do you need a college education to become a pilot or not? In this case, you thought you just wanted to go through your flight training, become a pilot and move on. But going through this larger program, you discovered, well, you, that's not actually what you wanted to do. So, had you not taken advantage of a program like this, your life would probably end up, ended up pretty different, huh?
2: Oh, definitely. Last year in my apartment, we I lived with three other guys. And every single one of us had started off at the university as a flight science major and just a flight science major. Now um, only one is still flying as a flight science major. The other two, um, one is a technical operations major and the other ones with me as management major. So we definitely have a big shift in going through here. And that's not always what's going to happen. There are plenty of people who come through and they realize, yeah, I want to be a pilot. That's exactly what I want to do. Um, It's just kind of, it's helpful to, get that experience, realize there's more going on here. And if I want to try something else, I can. It's this environment where I get to
1: do a bunch of different things. That's great. I'm happy for you. I'm I'm both happy and a little jealous. Yes, yes. I I spent years in in, uh, postgraduate studies in Michigan doing something very different. And I I have some regrets. And and, uh, (laughs) this sounds like a lot more fun.
2: No, definitely. Every time I give a tour to a student... I can always just look over at the parent and say, yeah, uh, you want to come back to school, don't you?
0: Mm-hmm. And it,
2: it, it, it has happened. We have had people come in here as uh, non-traditional students and get their degrees or even just people who got a little push. Actually, my dad being one of them, after I started at Western, he wanted to keep up with me. He just um, liked what I was doing and thought it was so cool. He actually went out and started doing his private pilot's license. So now we get to go and fly together. That's
0: awesome. That is. That, that is really cool. Well- Matthew Wheatstock is a a senior at Western Michigan University, and he is one of the university's aviation ambassadors, still the coolest job title we've had on the podcast. Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. and uh, Tell tell everyone how um, they can get in touch with you if they are interested in uh, pursuing aviation as a career, uh, and and Western Michigan
2: specifically. If you're interested, um, you can always check out the website. That'll be Wmish.edu slash aviation. Um, you can reach out to us there. We have a big web form where you can request some information from us, um, get in direct contact with an aviation ambassador if you have any questions, or you can even set up a virtual or in person tour of the College of Aviation if you ever want to come out to Battle Creek and see our facilities.
0: Well, thanks so much, uh, Matthew Wheatstock. This has been a-, a pleasure. Thank you for joining us and uh, best of luck in the future.
2: Thank you very much. It's great. <laughs>
0: Welcome back, and now it is our
1: turn to run through much of the rest of the week. And it was a busy week outside of all of that. Yeah, lots of little things happened, and one very, 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 very large thing happened. So, so let's start there. The
0: volcano in in Tonga erupted a massive, massive eruption, and one of those uh, see it from from space er- eruptions. And and it looked impressive from space. Was how big it was. Lots of people took the um, the weather, the pressure differential to to watch the um, watch the shockwave move around the world using the weather data, which was uh, rather crazy. I want to Yeah, cra- crazy is a good word. I, I was going to say impressive, but impressive is not the right word. It's partially the right word. Fascinating, I, I think, is one of them. What happened this week is that um, they. They sent uh, survey flights uh, from Australia and New Zealand to try and understand the the state of things there to see if they can start bringing supplies in to to help everyone. And the the runway was covered in a, a thick layer of ash, and it took a week to clear because they cleared it by hand, huh? Which is absolutely incredible—an uh, incredible amount of work to clear a a runway of i don't know how much ash how thick it was but but any amount uh, by hand uh, just an incredible amount of work but that that work has been done uh, so it sounds like
1: uh, c130s from australia are going to start landing soon with uh, with relief supplies and even in antarctica they have heavy equipment to clear the runway uh, so this is yeah. the scenes and and the video and the, the satellite imagery and the I wouldn't call it minor tsunamis, but the the tsunamis that happened all over the world was just incredible to watch. And there wasn't any real impact on aviation since since there's not much going on in that section of the world except for, you know, the area around the volcano itself. But uh, what a sight! Yeah, I mean,
0: just just some truly, you know, jaw dropping pictures and, and video from from all around the world. I mean, that that's the thing. It impacted. You know, the, every, everywhere, California, Chile, yeah. New Zealand, everywhere. Two weeks ago, uh, when we had John Astar on, we talked about the disturbing incident on takeoff for an Emirates triple uh, seven, and then just a few weeks after that so so last week late last week and emirate 2 emirates 777s had a, a runway incursion one was crossing uh the runway the other was departing uh, or at least it that's what it did it wasn't supposed to depart yet uh and it had a rejected takeoff it got up um close to 120 knots over the ground before rejecting the takeoff both flights were not i mean they were much closer than they should have been, uh, but they they were not uh, in danger of coming into contact with each other because, thankfully, the, the one flight uh, stopped before that happened, and they moved the other flight moved uh, uh, the other triple seven moved across the runway. Uh, but uh, that one is that one we know for sure is under investigation by the authorities in Dubai. Yeah, a lot of uh, interesting things happening at Dubai recently. Interesting things happening in the u s or or soon to be happening in the u s we have uh, Norse Atlantic Airways getting its AOC and they're going to start flights later this year uh, beginning to three initial destinations, one in New York, uh, Jason's favorite airport,
1: one in Florida, and one in California. and I know which airports they are now. It is uh New York Stewart uh, you may remember them from when Norwegian the predecessor. Of Norse, I guess I don't I don't know what you want to call it, Ancestor, uh, operated 737 sure. Max's transatlantic for like five minutes. Uh, Fort Lauderdale down in South Florida, and also Ontario in the greater Los Angeles area. So it's a bit different than Norwegian, where they they just flew in hot to the major airports, JFK and 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 the like. Uh, this time they will be, except for Fort Lauderdale, which I guess is the secondary airport from Miami, uh, they'll be on the fringes of these major metro cities. So Newburgh instead of JFK and Ontario instead of LAX, which is disappointing because Newburgh's really, really far away from New York City.
0: Yes, but people that book the tickets will sue New York on the ticket. And yes. That's eh, OK.
1: They'll book a flight to New York <laughs> ish. Ish. Uh,
0: the FAA has. Is revising how it approaches pilot training standards. Uh, so this one comes out of the 2021 law um, that came out of reactions to the 737 Max issues. One of which was the the FAA's training standards assumed pilots, not necessarily pilot proficiency, but pil- assumed things about ways pilots would operate that weren't necessarily accurate for pilots all around the world. So the way the FAA is going to approach its pilot standards going forward is to take real world experience from around the world into account when developing these standards. Uh, so that's the beginning of a very long process, uh, but interesting and good to see that, that it's happening um, so that um, the training standards are realistic for all pilots um, around the world that are operating. This just seems like a good idea, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think it does. Two things: one that I, I thought was going to be a really interesting thing. We were going to have this huge discussion about uh, this week. It was going to be really good, and and see, uh, you know, where this could lead, uh, and then what the Federal Register giveth, the Federal Register taketh away. A few days ago, or late last week. We saw a, a notice posted in the Federal Register that said, FedEx wants to attach uh, laser countermeasures to, to counteract uh, missiles that could be launched at the aircraft from, uh, from near the airport uh, using lasers.
1: and They want to install those on Airbus A321 aircraft. All sorts of questions raised by that statement. Like, Uh, they don't have any A321s. Or laser countermeasures. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And and one of the most interesting things was that the original proposal was from 2019. Yeah. So this has been lurking around for a while, and I guess no one noticed it. But I guess FedEx must be flying into some pretty hot destinations to require this. I'm not personally aware of any issues that FedEx has encountered with uh, potential threats to their aircraft from the ground. Um, I don't know of many commercial aircraft equipped with such a system. LL comes to mind. I don't know if that was a laser system. I don't even think their modern aircraft have that at this point. So even LL might be bowing out of that. But. Uh, Unfortunately, they submitted again to the Federal Register that uh, to avoid confusion to the public in a comment period on her proposal that the agency is not moving forward with at this time, the FAA is withdrawing the notice. So we'll never know the true intent or where FedEx was getting A321s from to attach laser beams to shoot down missiles from. Yeah, I mean, th- this was a,
0: a a fun one to to kind of kick around last week, uh, but uh, nope they they were just just kidding. Uh, but the the FAA does say that this requires further study, so hopefully there will be some some further study in, involved, and that'll be interesting. And then last uh, and least at this point, in fact, is the fact ouch. Uh, what well, don't know ouch they haven't d- done anything yet i'm i'm getting there they uh the northern pacific airways has unveiled its seven five seven uh registration november six two seven november papa it is a former so it's a former, it's a former American Airlines seven five seven, which is a former U.S. Airways seven five seven. Was it a former America West seven five
1: seven? Do we go back that far? I th- I just saw a U.S. Air. I don't know if it go- I mean the airplane's thirty years old, so probably. But the paint job looks lovely. The paint job is is brand new. You'd never know that this is a nearly thirty year old seven five seven operated uh, to its very final days by American. Um it looks good. Northern Pacific has a very ambitious business model, let's put it. Uh, they, they basically want to replicate Iceland Air West outgoing to um Asia, specifically Japan. So they want they're they're going to be hubbed in Anchorage, Alaska, and they will connect US West Coast cities to uh in the beginning days, Japan via Anchorage. And they have plans to do things like uh, stopovers, which Icelandair is famous for. They didn't; uh, I don't think they started that uh, phenomenon, but they really embraced it in recent years. Um, it's an interesting concept. The um, interior on this aircraft looks like it is simply reupholstered seats from American, which anyone who is familiar with the U.S. Airways or American Seven Five Seven would know. Um, bring a neck pillow and an iPad and a battery bank because there's not much on board that aircraft. Um, I have heard, I've seen reports that they are looking to acquire uh, the formerly United PS757s that were um, retired unceremoniously at the beginning of COVID in 2020, which would be a whole different ballgame. Actually, it would be completely different engines even, which is an interesting interesting yeah. twist. But it is. It's not a new idea. They want to exactly replicate uh, Iceland there and do it out to Japan. I'm interested to see where it goes. It's not really going to help me out here on the East Coast, but it's. It's an idea. I, if, it's not going it to work. If Japan, it's not going to work if it, it Japan doesn't fun. open up to tourists at any
0: point soon. There are a lot of there are a lot of headwinds uh, that that they'll have to navigate. But it, it, it'll be interesting to see if it works, and it'll be interesting to see if you can then do an Iceland Air Northern Pacific kind of round the world
1: tour. I think that would be well. Fun. They they will overlap in Seattle, so you could fly uh, like let's say Amsterdam, Reykjavik, Seattle, connect to Northern Pacific via Anchorage to Tokyo. That's that's a hell of a line. We'll see, but uh, but their their plane is out. You can look at pictures
0: of it, and we'll go from there. It's got raccoon eyes, just like uh, an A three hundred and thirty neo. Anyway, <laughs> I think we should leave it there for now. I, I don't think we have anywhere to go from there so I will just say that this has been episode 147 of av talk I am Ian Pechnik here as
1: always with Jason Rubinowitz thanks for listening